before it becomes a crisis, we really have to address the elephant in the room, which is water. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Western Planner Radio, a podcast where we try to connect with planners around the West, learn from each other, and try to build up the West together. I'm your host, Paul Moberly, editor for the Western Planner, and our guest today is Waverly Claw, the director of Resilient Communities and Watersheds for the Sonoran Institute. Today we're talking about her experience with water and land use and environmental planning in general. Hi, Waverly. So just curious, how did you get into the planning profession? My journey really started um, when I was very young because I became instantly interested in environmental sustainability and environmental issues. Uh, And that kind of carried through my uh, college career where I was really involved with a neighborhood struggle. I worked on um, a a neighborhood issue where uh, the city wanted to site a wastewater treatment plant in a predominantly uh, working class, people of color neighborhood. And that really piqued my interest in the intersection of environmental issues and um, land use planning. And I went on to work uh, in the nonprofit world for several years on um, really broad, long-standing international challenges um, and then national level uh, river and watershed protection issues. And it really became clear to me that the, um, the point of uh, considerable leverage is at the local level. So working with um, community members, with uh, officials, um, and with planners on how we build our environment um, at that local scale. And that's what got me interested in planning. So that's what motivated you to get into planning. Uh, where did you grow up and what's your backstory? I grew up in Michigan, actually, and then went to undergrad at Syracuse University in upstate New York, Uh, worked for a time in New York City on international uh, conflict prevention and resolution issues, and then moved out west to Portland, Oregon, where I worked for River Network, which is a national river and watershed protection organization. Um, And I, I landed in Colorado after three years of living abroad. I lived in South Korea for three years and learned a lot about their approaches to um, urban uh, livability in a dense environment. So I got my master's in urban and regional planning from the University of Colorado, Denver. So you've lived and worked in, in a number of places, including internationally. What have you learned through these different experiences? I love to travel and I love to live in other countries and experience other cultures. I lived on the 18th floor of, um, you know, a high rise building in Daegu, South Korea, and it was great to see how each building complex had um, open space and and areas for, you know, play and for walking along the river and exercising along the river. It was a great experience. Living in South Korea piqued my interest in in the way that they manage their waste and recycling programs, uh, how they uh, have really dense urban 
cores um, while still preserving open space and uh, areas of recreation for their population. So you lived internationally and just asking when you were working in New York, did you live in New York? Yep, I lived in Manhattan and Roosevelt Island. <laughs> okay, so with New York being the city of cities here and having that international experience in South Korea, can you kind of compare and contrast that the urban experience of South Korea and New York? Oh, very interesting. So Manhattan um, has such a history and is so built up um, that I think the main difference I noticed was um, in Manhattan, there are um, larger areas of open space like Central Park or like along the East River um, that residents need to come to from perhaps a little bit further away. Whereas in South Korea, um, there weren't necessarily those really large open spaces to flock to um, in one or two places of the city, but there were uh, pocket parks uh, all over the place that were built into the development. And of course, um, South Korea's development really occurred much later than uh, New York City's did. And so uh, there were sort of master planned communities that could think about those components ahead of time in Korea. You know, New York has been making some strides recently. Um, they're closing some streets and making them pedestrian only and, um, you know, really increasing the, the bike infrastructure. And that is important uh, and, and can help a lot. But um, that's a, a major <laughs> metropolitan city that has a lot of opportunities and challenges to it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, you know, I've spent a little time in New York, and I can't say that I love New York City, but I can appreciate some of the efforts they've done, the High Line and some of those pocket parks. Uh, so other lessons that you've learned from uh, living internationally or from any of the places that you lived? My family is Dutch, and so I actually lived for a short while in the Netherlands as well. And the way that they have developed their bike infrastructure and also their relationship with water because you know, large swaths of the country is kind of at or below sea level. And so they've been thoughtful about how they want to manage their um, water um, and protect themselves from um, sea level rise and, uh, and storm inundation. So. We have a lot to learn from those examples as well. Yeah, there is lots we can learn from other places and how they've developed and how they work. You know, that, that is such an incredible experience you've had to be able to work or live and work in, in different uh, environments like that. And, you know, for me, it really cements that benefit of seeing and under understanding the built environment of other cultures. You know, each development, each place is unique. Um, and the themes and cultural relationship, though, with space and form and density and movement is so distinct and so interesting. And it's not that we're trying to recreate and, you know, copy and paste that onto our American form of development, but that there are ways that we can re 
we can rethink about how we develop and how we want to move forward when when places do things so much differently and and better in many ways. What's really interesting also about listening to you talk about these different areas you've lived and the environments you've experienced, it it really brings up for me that connection to, you know, when we say environmental planning, we're also talking about our own environments and our own experience and how we've developed our environments and how we interact with the environment, the natural environment around our built environments. Just uh, that interesting interchange. So speaking of water, <laughs> um, tell me more about your work that you do uh, with the Sonoran Institute. So I'm the Director of Resilient Communities and Watersheds at Sonoran Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that has been working on kind of bridging the natural world and the built environment and really kind of creating a harmony between those two um, for the past 30 years. And the work that I do um, is with our Growing Water Smart program that really recognizes um, the growing scarcity of water in the West and the fact that you know, climate change is uh, bringing us more drought due to hotter temperatures, less precipitation. And so we're seeing a growing gap between um, water supply and the demands that we're putting on that water. And so we work with uh, municipalities and counties to um, better understand what our water constraints are so that um, these communities can um, develop and grow uh, in a resilient way, sort of taking into account the water constraints that we are already beginning to see and will be seeing more of in the future. And planners play a really big role in the way that communities develop, right? You know, where residential goes and how dense it is, um, you know, uh, how we're attracting commercial businesses. Uh, and so we lay out a series of intervention points where land use planners have um, an opportunity to create more water efficient uh, buildings and um, you know, develop in a, a development pattern that prioritizes conservation of um, open space, critical habitat, um, and, and essentially work more closely with the community's water providers and elected officials to um, shape a resilient community um, that will endure in the future. You know, so often we see that planners are siloed from um, water providers and they only interact through will serve letters. Like, okay, this utility will provide the water that this development uh, application is requiring, but there's such an opportunity to bridge that uh, gap in knowledge and to come together to develop some more um, effective solutions for uh, water efficient and water smart communities of the future. Walk us through and help us to see what the integration of land use and water looks like. So our Growing Water Smart program is a partnership with 
um, the great folks at the Babbitt Center for Land and Water Policy. And what we put on is a, a training and assistance program for uh, local governments. And what that looks like is you know, we host these multi-day Growing Water Smart workshops where a set of um, local community leaders come together um, from the, the planning sector, from the water utility side, um, elected officials, et cetera. And they spend three days kind of grappling with a challenge relating to water, whether it is um, growing demand and potentially diminishing water supply, or whether it is taking a more holistic view of water um, in terms of stormwater management and low impact development, et cetera. And um, we take them through a series of trainings where we lay out what some of the opportunities are to address those challenges. Um, and in the realm of land use planning, that includes looking at the development review process. You know, is water brought into the conversation early? And is it emphasized that water efficient development is the priority for the community? Um, what do the community's land use regulations and, and code say about uh, water efficient development? Are we asking for developments to submit a water budget that they can stick to that states you know, how much water they're going to be using outdoors? And are we potentially rewarding those developments that are committed to uh, low water use, xeric landscaping and, and kind of forgetting about the, the lure of turf grass, if you will? Um, are we thinking about the development pattern so that we are keeping um, you know, natural drainage ways free from development so that we're not just grading the whole area um, and we're being thoughtful about that interplay between the natural and the built environment. Um, and, and so those are some of the, the tools that we provide, you know, examples from other communities that are, are doing this great work. Um, are we incentivizing developers to um, through their, through their fees, pay into a, um, a net neutral water development plan where existing development can be retrofit, you know, get those old high water using toilets out of there and replace them with, you know, highly water efficient toilets through a program um, that is paid by new development coming in. There are lots of creative solutions that planners have at their disposal to really push the needle forward on building resilient and water efficient communities. Can you tell us about some of the tools that planners have to develop water smart communities? There are studies that have shown that increasing density reduces overall water use. And uh, so just thinking about whether your community has an accessory dwelling unit ordinance that allows ADUs to be built in already established neighborhoods. That increases uh, the density while um, keeping the neighborhood 
feel and fabric intact, and it also reduces water use, for example. Um, I think that cluster development is uh, a tool that uh, can conserve water through, you know, smaller lot sizes, lot sizes that are, or lots that are built more closely together, um, keeping uh, open space available for uh, community use and also um, ecosystem services. So we, we have opportunities to look at kind of outdoor water use, indoor water use, uh, community level water use, uh, and there are a lot of creative solutions out there. There's a development that is doing um, community-wide rainwater storage and redistribution. And so we, we need to be thinking for the 21st century outside of the box uh, about how we can build and sustain ourselves in a more water-constrained future. Yeah, living out in this arid West that we do live in, there's so many challenges with water. I've been in meetings with uh, with community leaders in, in more rural areas, but are, that are fairly close to you know fast urbanizing uh, locations, and and those the concerns that they have about running out of water because these urbanized areas are are sucking it up so fast and are are suburbanizing and and building out so quickly, whereas they're just sort of plugging along and yet those the water is just being pulled out from their aquifers. And what would you say to a regional planning organization trying to, to work uh, with regional water issues? It's important to remember that it's much easier to build um, water efficiency and low impact development into new development than to try to retrofit existing development. So we have an opportunity at that point to be as um, forward thinking and as purposeful as possible. And that is true for, you know, environmental planning, thinking about water issues, thinking about affordable housing. You know, there are, are lots of important goals that we can achieve by thinking hard about the future development that we want to see in our communities. Before it becomes a crisis, we really have to address the elephant in the room, which is water. And you know, we don't want communities to be um, pitted against each other, fighting for water. We want um, a development pattern and growth that is really sensitive to water so that we can all you know, continue to you know, develop and grow and, and not have it, you know, be a major issue, a major area of contention. You know, the whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting over. Like we, we want to kind of end that stereotype or cliche of what's going on in the West. So we have it within our power to do so, I think. Is there a place that's really doing it well that you can point to as an example? I work in Colorado, in Arizona, in California, and um, there are definitely some great examples of communities that are um, taking water scarcity seriously and have been for some time. The city of Westminster has a great history of understanding water scarcity and they link um, their land use types 
to historical water use patterns. And that helps them be able to plan for the future and look at their future land use needs. Um, also, you know, communities across Colorado are thinking about how they are going to integrate their water goals into their comprehensive plans and then from there trickle down to their land use codes. Uh, the city of Evans in northern Colorado um, has just done that. Uh, Pueblo the city and the county are collaborating on um, a, a new regional comprehensive plan and they're integrating water as an element throughout that plan and, and that helps so much in terms of solidifying the priorities a community has around water um, into future activities and, and changes to land use regulations, etc. Um, in Colorado, uh, on the, the western slope, we have um, Grand County who's thinking about their drought preparedness plan um, and Summit County, which is thinking about outdoor water use reductions. And so we're starting to see the snowball effect occurring with more and more communities uh, providing examples of what can be done and what can be achieved around um, water. So there are places that are doing good work, obviously, right? Um, and I know a lot of this discussion can get a little doom and gloom just because of the realities of our situation with water. Um, you know, it's a, a resource that's rapidly being depleted in many areas, right? Um, and, and the solutions that you described and the solutions that are, are coming up, um, sometimes they can seem like they're at conflict with goals, with other goals like you know, economics or um, certain quality of life desires. But these solutions aren't zero-sum, right? And with a little forethought, we can improve our quality of life and prepare for a reduced water future. And I know, you know, some of the work you're doing is helping that to come into play for these communities in the West. I get really excited about solutions that achieve multiple benefits. If we can um, develop in a way that is lower cost, that um, preserves the natural environment, that is resilient so that, you know, we don't have to keep making changes and, you know, pulling out older fixtures and putting in new ones. Like, let's be really forward thinking. Let's save our residents money in the long term by building in a way that doesn't rely so heavily on water. And then we can send more of that water downstream and it can be uh, used for the natural environment as well. You know, we wanna keep our, um, you know, our stream flows high. We want to have habitat for um, you know, fish and, and other aquatic wildlife. We need to ensure that the built environment is not completely decimating the natural environment upon which we rely. You know, we need those ecosystem services to keep functioning uh, for, for our benefit at just as much as the natural environment. It's really about that synergy and that relationship that we have with nature as not uh, that, that we're part of our own environment, that we're not separated from our own environment, right? Following those same lines of thought, 
what would you say is the relationship between community resilience and environmental planning? So I think that the natural environment is um, a critical underpinning uh, for building community resilience. I think that we cannot become resilient as a society and in our individual communities without um, really strengthening our link to the natural environment. And so for me, that's been a passion of mine. We have become largely divorced from the natural resources that sustain us as a society. Um, we turn on the water tap and water comes out and we turn on our sprinklers and water waters our grass. Um, we get electricity delivered, et cetera. But um, we're starting to see the impact of climate change um, that you know, humans have contributed to. And so um, all of our activities are starting to really strain the fabric upon which our you know, existence relies. And so um, I find it critical that planners really incorporate an understanding of the natural environment and the ecosystem in which we have chosen to live to incorporate that into the way that we design and plan our communities for the future. Um, you know, we are seeing increased drought, increased wildfires, um, flooding is being exacerbated. And without weaving those issues into our future development, we're gonna continue to essentially fight against nature. And so taking a holistic approach, you know, incorporating um, what we know about you know, the potential of you know, flooding uh, or uh, wildfire risk, incorporating that into the way that we build our communities um, is critical right now. We're not going to be able to rely on engineered, hardened solutions to um, keeping the natural environment and, and keeping natural hazards at bay. We have to um, incorporate and blend um, into the, the built environment. And I, I think um, what gets me most excited about that is there are win-win solutions that we can implement. You know, if we think about it in the beginning and we um, work towards low impact development and um, nature-based solutions in our communities, then we won't be working against nature, we'll be working with it and we'll pr be preserving the, the ecosystem services that, that we rely on so that um, we can be resilient long into the future. It's about understanding your community's priorities and, and planning in advance so that you're not uh, planning in crisis. Uh, you know, we, we all want to have, you know, beautiful communities and we take for granted that the water is flowing from the tap and is, is relatively cheap. But as we move into the future, water is gonna be more expensive both for consumers and for developers. Um, 
in parts of Colorado, the price of water is becoming a, a prohibiting factor in growth. And so we are starting to see some of the trade-offs that we need to make uh, in terms of how we prioritize the use of water. We can all be in a much better place as a region if we're all um, really thoughtful about the, the use of water in different contexts. Do we want to be using our water to, to water our lawns where then we're gonna have these, you know, these uh, emergency drought watering restrictions and then we won't be able to water our lawns and they'll, they'll be brown and you know, uh, not very pleasant to look at every summer <laughs> moving forward. But it, on the other hand, what we could do is start updating our landscape regulations to plant xeric you know, drought tolerant species and enjoy our you know, community landscape moving forward into the future. That's a good point about enjoying more of our native species and kind of being proud of where we're from and, and, and letting our landscaping reflect that. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, what, what do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I really love participating and facilitating in our Growing Water Smart workshops. I think that one of the great opportunities is bringing people together from different departments to talk about sort of locally generated solutions to water issues. Um, and so I, I love doing those grow, Growing Water Smart workshops through Sonoran Institute. And, um, and I've also enjoyed that type of community level work in the past. Um, when I worked for the Department of Local Affairs, um, through our Planning for Hazards project, we were working with the town of Milliken on um, building resilience in their community. And they identified um, sort of the high cost of water and future water scarcity as one of their biggest challenges. And so um, the state of Colorado uh, and a team that we brought together worked with them to update their landscape ordinance to reduce reliance on turf grass, to think about low water use, plantings, um, and to really ensure that you know, a fast growing community like the town of Milliken was um, preparing itself and building wisely uh, with an understanding of some of the future water challenges that they were gonna be facing. That's all the time we have. I just wanna say thank you so much, Waverly. Thank you for the work that you do and for taking the time today to talk to us. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and this was this was great. Uh, really, I had some fun with it. So thanks so much, Paul. <laughs> Bye-bye. And thanks, everyone. That was Waverly Claw, the Director of Resilient Communities and Watersheds for the Sonoran Institute. And that wraps up this episode. Check out our website where you can get more great planning content at westernplanner.org. And while there, you can sign up for our e-journal, which is written by planners for planners. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and join us next month. In the meanwhile, let's keep building up the West together. Thanks.